Welcome to the Pubcast, your inside look at electronic publishing. From ebooks to websites to podcasts and more, join us as we interview the professionals on the cutting edge of publishing. My name is Brittany Mitnick, and today I'm here with Amaria Orenstein from Go Literary. Hi, Amaria. Could you explain your job title and your involvement in the publishing world? Sure. So I'm a literary agent, uh, which simply means that I get book deals for writers. I kind of serve as a go-between between publishing houses and writers. Um, I find suitable publishers. I negotiate contracts. I help writers edit their work so that we could put their best foot forward. I do all kinds of other little tasks, but those are those are the major things that I do. Great. So what kind of electronic publishing do you do in this line of work? Sure. So there's actually two kinds. I, I don't necessarily do electronic publishing on a day-to-day basis, but part of what I do in selling an author's work is selling the e-rights to their books. I, and I negotiate that into, you know, in a contract. Um, another thing that I do sometimes, you know, we want to do a little publicity thing to spotlight an upcoming big book and we might do a Kindle single or something like that and create an e-book on our own and publish it independently. I've actually done a lot of that, especially for books, not just forthcoming books that we want to advertise, but books that were published before the Internet Revolution, when there was kind of this hint that something was coming and it was a very undefined area of a publishing contract saying, you know, all rights that will come into an, into existence in at the future and future dates. So kind of any contract almost before 1993 really doesn't specifically deal with anything that we now call e-rights. When I was training, when I worked for another agent, a big part of what I did was create e-books for all of the books that she negotiated contracts for before the 1990s. Because those books just didn't exist in e-format at all. It wasn't a concept. It wasn't something that was considered. And, you know, a lot of the publishers who had published those books had already ceased to exist. So those rights were not even up for grabs. We didn't have to fight with publishers to see who owned those rights. We could just go ahead and create independent ebooks, mostly through Amazon. Okay. So those are the kinds of things that I do with ebooks. So you went back and talked to authors who published in the 90s, right? Some of the books were, you know, dating back even to the 1970s, even if we thought that they were still relevant, you know, a lot of uh, American political history and things like that, that, you know, we probably couldn't resell to a new publisher for a reprint edition at this time because they were somewhat dated, but that would still be of interest to some people. And, and again, because it doesn't really cost anything at all to create an ebook, especially if you're using you know, uh, Amazon Kindle or Kindle KDP to make it available to the world. So were these authors surprised to have you contact them and want to make this new form out of their book? Most of them were thrilled. Some of them thought that it was just unbelievable that 30 years later, we think that there might be interest in their book. They were asking for it. We didn't just say, oh, we should do this. But they approached us and we thought it was a great idea. And it was fabulous. I actually ended up putting out an entire series. One author who writes specifically American politics for a very specific audience. We turned his 11 books into a series. I designed 11 covers that kind of exhibited the theme of each book. Yes, but also were unified in a way that it was presented as a series in a way that his work never was. It actually gave us a lot of creative leeway in what we could do. 
And so how was the response from readers for those ebooks? You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Again, because the specific series that I'm talking about was tailored to a very specific audience. There were a lot of historians who were very excited to see it reissued, people who were actually studying the author as a subject. And so it was a way to access his works, which have not yet been donated to an archive or anything like that. So it was an amazing resource for people. Other ones that were works of fiction, you don't necessarily get any response. So you don't know what, what readers think. You see a couple of sales here and there, and and that's great. Sometimes you're surprised, and there are hundreds of copies sold of something that you didn't expect would be of interest so many years later. And then there were there were some random runaway hits for brand new things that we decided would be fun to do as ebooks to promote upcoming bigger works. And those got wonderful responses. And the authors loved it because they were generally shorter pieces, 40, 50 pages, something you wouldn't publish in a magazine you didn't want to expand into a book, but it was this great idea for a story that, that the author wanted to tell. And it was just the perfect medium through which to tell it. That's great. So how much were you selling them for and how did you decide on pricings for those things? Oh, um, some of them, you know, I, I think if I remember correctly, the parameters for Amazon KDP is it has to be between 99 cents and 9.99. So you don't get, you know, you can't charge whatever you want. Um, if you only charge 99 cents, I think you only get a 35% royalty. So, you know, we, we negotiated with the author, what, you know, depending on what our goal was, if the goal was to promote a bigger project, we were happy to sell it at a lower price point to draw more attention. If the goal was to reissue something that wasn't available in any other platform, we probably, you know, veered closer to the 9.99 price point because you're not going to get this book any other way. The author still wants to make some money and there is no larger project that's going to bring in revenue. It depends on the individual project. You also look at what other books on the same topic are selling at. You know, you don't want to be the most expensive book on the market and you probably don't want to be the cheapest book. (laughs) You, You want to find that happy medium. It's a bit of a guessing game, but the beauty of creating your own book is that if you're not happy with the price, you can always change it. Do a lot of authors decide not to sell their e-rights and maintain them? That's a great question. Um, No. (laughs) The truth of the matter is it's very hard to get a publishing deal today if you're not willing to give up your e-rights. Most publishers will insist that you grant them print and e-book rights. And there's no reason not to. You know, publishers are, are really great with it. It's a medium that they understand very well and... And again, a publisher doesn't really want just the print rights because a lot of revenue comes in from digital sales. And so a publisher is not going to give that up easily. So it's very hard to turn to an editor and say, hey, I really want you to publish this book, but I only want to give you print. It's rare, you know, and if they can't do it on their own, they license it out to someone. But it's a big chunk of change for them that they're not just going to say, oh, okay, you know, keep it. Yeah. And so how has that process of negotiating e-rights changed in your time as a literary agent? Uh, well, so I came into publishing after the ebook revolution had already begun. So I actually don't have experience negotiating prior to ebooks. Like I said, before 1993, there was kind of this idea that ebooks were on the way or that something big was happening in terms of digital you know, we didn't quite know what the internet was. We didn't quite know what was happening. But people who were really paying close attention to, techno- to the technological revolution 
started writing into their contracts very vague, very murky language, suggesting that something was about to happen, that there would be some other medium in addition to traditional print and that they would stake their claim in it. For people who've been in the business 20, 30 years, it's changed drastically. For those of us who came in, you know, in the early 2000s or beyond, we don't know negotiating contracts without e-rights. Uh, so for me personally, it hasn't changed that much. But it does change the way we negotiate because we understand that there is a significant difference between granting digital publishing rights and traditional print rights, right? There are huge costs associated with putting an actual physical print book together that don't exist with digital publishing. So the big debate for us is to get a fair deal for our authors to see what kind of stake in royalties can they have here? What share in the profits are they entitled to? And this this is what really is the challenge for us today because traditional print has been in existence for so long. There are standards. We all know what standard royalty rates for hardcover book, for paperback, for mass paperback. We know what we're looking for in terms of numbers. There is no agreed upon standard for ebook royalties. That is something we're still fighting over. You know, some publishers will make the case that they want to give you the exact same royalties that they give you for the hardcover or paperback edition of your book. Now, 10% royalties on an ebook is ludicrous because, again, it doesn't cost them nearly what it costs to make a print book. There's no paper charge. There's no print charge. You're not paying for ink. There's no transportation costs. Those are the huge expenses involved in creating print books. Those don't exist in ebooks. So to say that, a, that an author is only entitled to 10% seems wholly unjust on the author agent side will argue that authors are entitled to as much as 50% royalties because if it was treated as any other subsidiary right that you would grant a publisher, the split would be 50-50. Now, I don't really know any publishers who will agree to a 50-50. I mean, that is pretty rare. What we're fighting for is somewhere in the 15 to 25% royalty rate, you know, and, and there is a big push to make 25% royalties the standard. That's how this has changed, and that's what the big challenge is for us now. So what would it take to make that a standard? I think just a general agreement across the board. You know, we don't have written laws about these things, but it would just be an agreement. I think if, if everyone at the Big Five would agree to it, then it would just become the standard, which is kind of where we're headed. You think so? I have not had an issue negotiating 25% royalty rates. Sometimes a much smaller press will say they just can't do it. But it's becoming increasingly common, I would say. Okay. Are there any books, like maybe a particular genre or, or field, that you never sell e-rights for or only sell e-rights for? Hmm. Truthfully, no. I, you know, I can't even think of a genre that you can't get an e-book. For. You know, things that you wouldn't necessarily think, like cookbooks, because they're so visual and you want you want it in front of you and you want to hold it. Those exist in ebook form. Uh, children's books is a huge ebook market. You know, something that you would think that the kid wants to hold and run around with, but I guess every kid has an iPad these days. So, no, I, even scholarly books, you know, if I'm dealing with university presses, even they insist on ebook rights. But whether they generate the ebook and distribute it themselves or license it to a third party, even they want ebooks. And the only books that I would do just as ebooks is if we're creating something specifically for that purpose. There are books that exist only as ebooks. You can sell just an ebook. 
uh, again, in pretty much any any genre, there there are all kinds of companies that are just online publishing companies. There's, I have nothing against it. I haven't I haven't dealt with that personally, just because a lot of what I do, people want to see in print and digitally. Yeah. So when you started in this field, did you have any expectations for dealing with technology or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you can't be in this business now and avoid it, you know, that, that would be backward looking and probably detrimental to your business. So I came in knowing full well that even though I am not necessarily a Kindle reader, that I would be negotiating rights to sell Kindle editions and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think you can exist as an agent and not handle that. So has that changed your habits as a reader? Do you read more eBooks now? I'm trying, you know, I'm old enough that the internet, <laughs> you know, most of my education happened before the, or my formative years anyways, happened before we knew about the internet. So I have been a reader of physical books, you know, for way longer than I have been an online reader. I don't, I don't have anything against eBooks. I think they're fabulous. I think that anything that brings books to a wider audience that gets people reading is, you know, more than okay with me. It's just my personal preference. I love the physicality of turning pages, the weight of, you know, how much you've read and how much you still have to go and being able to see those kinds of things. I also just interact with words better in print than I do on a screen. I I'm going to sound like such a ridiculous old person, but my mind starts to wander. I feel like, oh, I should check my email. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, so many other things going on. It's just not the same experience for me, but I do appreciate it. This is definitely not some sort of Luddite call against technology. I, I do think it's wonderful. It's just not my preference. You know, I, I do all my submissions. Anybody who queries me, I read queries online only. I don't print out, you know, if you send me three chapters. But if you're my client and I'm representing your work and I want to edit it before we take it out on submission, that is all printed. I cannot read that on a screen. I, I don't. It's not what it's just not me. But I did read my first novel on a Kindle. I only read half of it, but I don't think that was the Kindle's fault. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> so your background is Mostly in history, I noticed uh, when I was looking at your LinkedIn page and your bio on the website, um, you even have a PhD in American history. Yes. Hence my inability to read on a, on a computer. I, I'm used to the physicality of documents in an archive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to ask. First of all, how did that lead you into publishing? And then how has that background influenced the way you work in publishing? Sure. So. How it led me into publishing is actually a really serendipitous kind of ridiculous. There's no magic story of, oh, I found my calling. It was more like I was a grad student. I was working on a PhD and my fellowship was enough to, you know, pay my rent and put me through school and, and I could live and it was fine. But I felt like all my friends were grown up and had these great jobs. And also I was pretty miserable in school. <laughs> grad school is somewhat isolating and overwhelming. And I felt like if I don't have something else in my life, I am going to not finish school ever. And I randomly told my then boyfriend, now husband, that I wanted a job private tutoring. And he, his boss at the time was married to the woman who was head of the PTA in, in a neighboring town 
And the very same day that she got my name for tutoring, <laughs> the woman that I ended up working for for all these years approached her in need of a French tutor. And I happened to be from Montreal and speak French fluently and, you know, yada, 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 to quote Seinfeld. Um, I became a literary agent. <laughs> Ridiculous. You know, you kind of want to hear like, oh, I was studying in the archives and I met somebody and it went this way and, and it was all, but it was totally random and really had very little to do with my studies in history. But I will say that my training as a historian has actually probably dovetailed perfectly into this job. You know, the editing skills that I honed over, I don't even want to admit how many years of school and the skills that I developed in terms of research and writing enable me to help others bring out the best in their work. You know, it, it turned out after all these years in school, I, I didn't really want to write for myself. I just wanted to help other people write. Um, but it works perfectly. I, I feel like I use what I was trained to do, what I, what I honed as a historian every day. Probably more so than when I, you know, if I had stayed in academia and just gone into teaching <laughs> Uh, I think I just have one last question. Um, I guess very broadly, like, what do you see as the as the future of electronic publishing? Like, what kind of innovations are yet to be had? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm not enough of a technology nerd to have a really great answer to that question. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I will say what's interesting is that this is kind. You know, this debate has been ongoing since ebooks came out you know is this the death of print publishing and yet so far the answer is no it's really not um you know numbers were down a little bit print uh, digital was seemed to be gaining momentum and seemed like it was going to overtake print and that hasn't happened and in fact numbers have started to reverse somewhat uh so you know i mean for old folks like me that's great news <laughs> but but uh you know what's the next big thing something that we're starting to see and that i find absolutely fascinating is kind of multimedia books and so they're digital books that you know if you touch certain words it'll either open an encyclopedia article explaining who that person is or what you know what this term means or you know, in term in fiction, there'll be music playing in the background. And like, you know, I, I've seen ghost stories where the words disappear as you read that, you know, just such amazing visual tricks almost, you know, to to enhance the reading experience so that it's not just a book. And again, I, I think it's a great way, especially to grab young readers. You know, this works so well, you know, going back to academia uh, with academic textbooks online, there are now entire course companions that are done like this. So that if you're reading a text on, I don't know what, Middle East politics, let's just pick randomly, you know, and you scroll over some peace treaty that you don't know about, it will open up an article and it will give you primary source document. I mean, you could read the actual document right there on the screen. Now, I mean, I'd rather have the original, but <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And that is something that we can't do in print. I mean, that would cost those books. Companions like that are so expensive and it's an unfair burden on students. But when it's done electronically, it's much more affordable. And it's just unbelievable how much information you can have at the tip of your fingertips with something like that. So I think, you know, and I, I hope, I hope that things will see more and more of that. I, I think that's a really positive development. Yes, definitely. 
Well, that's all I have for today. So thank you again, Amaria, for stopping by. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. This has been the Pubcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.thepubcast.org.